Welcome to Callings, a podcast of NetView, the network for a vocation in undergraduate education, featuring conversations on college, career, and a life well lived. I'm Erin Van Lanningham. And I'm John Barton. And we invite you to explore with us and our guests what vocation means both personally and collectively. We approach the subject with eagerness and humility and seek a diversity of viewpoints. Through these conversations, we hope to offer listeners better ways to understand how discerning one's purpose in connection with others is central to a meaningful life. Our guest today is Sean Casey, who, during the Obama administration, served as Special Representative for Religion and Global Affairs at the U.S. State Department and Director of the Office of Religion and Global Affairs. He has taught at Harvard Divinity School, Wesley Theological Seminary, and the Walsh School of Foreign Service at Georgetown, where he also directed the Berkeley Center for Religion, Peace, and World Affairs. Currently, Sean is a senior fellow with the Luce Project on Religion and its Publics at the University of Virginia. He has written on the ethics of the war in Iraq, the role of religion in American presidential politics, and has a new book coming out about his time at the State Department entitled Chasing the Devil at Foggy Bottom, The Future of Religion in American Diplomacy. For our purposes, it is also worth mentioning that Sean received his undergraduate education at Abilene Christian University, a NetView member. Sean, welcome to Callings. Thanks so much. It's great to be with you guys. To get us started, your forthcoming book highlights some remarkable experiences uh, and work that you did at the State Department for several years. But it's also the book is also a kind of memoir, at least in parts in which you share your life journey that led to those opportunities and experiences. And one part of that journey that you talk about that stood out to me involves uh, what we on this podcast would call a kind of dramatic vocational shift (laughs) from being a seminary professor to being a special representative for global affairs on behalf of the U.S. government. I mean, that's quite a a change um, in your vocation. Talk through that shift a little bit. Uh, with us, if you would, how it happened, what you were thinking at the time, uh, maybe how you reflect on it now. Well, in many ways, I sort of felt like a a 50-year-old sports writer who got a phone call one day and said, the Celtics need you. You're going to start a shooting guard tonight. I used to have that dream. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, well, I did too, you know, but suddenly, it's interesting, I came to Boston the same fall that Larry Bird Mm -hmm. did. And, you know, he's six inches taller than I am, and his jump shot was a little better than mine. So (laughs) it actually worked out for him to play for the Celtics, not so much for me. But I've always been fascinated with the political implications of religious belief and practice. And that that was incubated in my own upbringing within this, this small, interesting, even peculiar tribe called the Churches of Christ, where uh, you, you look at most global religious traditions today, and on this question of what are the religious implica- what are the political implications of religious belief, most major religions and even minor religions are, are pluralistic. They have different answers to that question. Yeah. So I grew up in this Petri dish where even in my own family growing up, particularly in the Vietnam era, I saw a church deeply divided over what what the church's response should be. And I just became intrigued by that question. So when I started my long academic training journey, that was the question that animated me was Mm. what as a Christian, as a Christian theologian and as a pastor, uh, what what were our responsibilities to the political uh, questions of the age? And uh, I felt like I didn't have any good answers to that by the time I, I traipsed off to graduate school. So it's an issue I, I've been uh, occupied with for a long, long time. And in the course of my graduate work, I actually did a degree in foreign policy with an amazing array of, of teachers at the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard. Um, and, and so I, I began to approach that question from both sides, being a member of a particular religious tradition, but also studying the pluralistic political world we found ourselves in. And I had always assumed I would become a religion professor. Uh, and if by some miracle an opportunity uh, presented itself to work in the government, uh, I would certainly look at that and, and grab it if that uh, opportunity came. 
So as, as luck would have it, or grace or providence, whatever whatever title you want to grab, uh, my first teaching job out of Harvard Divinity School was at Wesley Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C., and I ran a special program there called the National uh, Semester, National Capital Semester for Seminarians, which was open to any graduate student in any accredited uh, seminary or divinity school in the country to come and study religion and politics or uh, 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 public policy with me. Uh, and so I spent 13 years running this seminar and building up a um, pretty vast reservoir of, of contacts and relationships. And in particular, I was introduced to John Kerry in 2005 after he had lost the presidential race. And I was in the middle of writing my first book, which was uh, The Role of Religion in the 1960 presidential campaign, Kennedy versus Nixon. And John Kerry was uh, absolutely mesmerized by, by JFK. And so we were introduced by an intermediary, and I found myself in early 2005 sitting across the table there from then Senator John Kerry, who had just lost the presidential race. Mm. And we developed a really odd couple sort of relationship yeah. that then eight years later uh, uh, produced this opportunity to come in and become his religion advisor. Wow. Yeah, that's amazing. So so maybe you would say, uh, while it's a, certainly a dramatic shift looking from the outside, from seminary to professor to special representative, uh, there, there's a lot of continuity and synergy in that in that in that change for you as well. I think that's right. I mean, I had written a, a doctoral dissertation under Father Brian Hare at Harvard Divinity School on the ethics of nuclear proliferation, which is actually a State Department mm. issue. So I understood how the State Department worked. I knew something about the history of how ethics and religion had played a part there. Uh, but it was really then quite fortuitous to be introduced to John Kerry. And we had this amazing uh, relationship over that, that eight-year period and um, – and when he became Secretary of State, uh, they told me an interesting story that the first thing that happens to you when you become a, a cabinet secretary is a, an army of attorneys come running at you. And they say, Madam Secretary, here are 20 things you can never do, so forget about these. Or here are 20 things you have to do, and here are 100 things you might do. And in the process of those briefings, a briefer told him he had the legal authorization to launch a religion advisory office. Uh, and the story was told to me that he stopped the briefer and turned to his chief of staff, who I had known since 2005, uh, and he said, David, call Sean and see if you can twist his arm to come in and launch this office. Mm, wow. So uh, they called me, and literally days later, I, I had a handshake deal to come in yeah. and build this, this office from scratch. Yeah. Wow. That idea of the life-changing phone call is interesting, but as you've drawn out, it's sort of the maybe natural step after a sequence of many steps over years with your friendship with Secretary of State Kerry. I wondered if we could talk a little bit about the word chase, which is in the title of your book, and you use it several times throughout the, throughout the book. I'm wondering if that illustrates the kind of work that you've done or what you're calling your vocation. I mean, to me, it, it, it you know, it, it signals sort of maybe a frenzy or, you know, something that you're sort of after. Could you reflect a little bit on experiencing your vocation maybe as something surprising or maybe something that you're chasing? Well, that, that's a great, very complicated question. Let me see if I can give you a good answer to, to match it. Uh, I think it's sort of all of the above. I mean, in the sense that I, I've been chasing this question of what are the religious implicate, what are the political implications of religious belief and practice, not only for me personally and for my own community, but also uh, analyzing the world. And, and uh, you know, I think religious communities, as I say many times in the book, are multivalent actors. You know, there's some people who say my tribe is always righteous when it moves into the public sphere. Other people say, yeah, that may be true, but the, the people next door to you are always uh, evil when they go into this. And the truth is, um, uh, it's, it's multivariant, multivalent, if you will. No, no religious group is righteous from top to bottom through its entire history. Every religious community is capable of great deeds, of great horrors, and in this vast middle where our, our motives and, our, and the consequences of our religious practices are, are, are not purely good, nor are they purely evil. So that, that's an intellectual question that I, I chased, I think. Um, 
And let's be honest, I think there's a lot in American foreign policy to point at that says that's not, we were not uh, at our best. Those are not our best angels at work there. We've made some terrible, terrible mistakes ourselves. So this is not a case where some Christian guy comes in and becomes the, the purifying angel that somehow baptizes everything that the, the, the Obama administration was doing with respect to religion. So there is a sense that these are questions that have kept me busy since, uh, since I was a teenager. And I, I tell the story in the book about having to register for the draft in Vietnam uh, in January of 1975 when I turned 18. And what a terrible struggle that was for me. So there is a sense that these these are personal issues that I have chased, and they're also academic issues that, that I have pursued. The reality is, too, as I, I try to illustrate in the book, uh, diplomacy is never neat and orderly. On, on the one hand, every administration has a set of ideals that it's going to pursue, and there may be some top-line issues that you start out saying, we're going we're gonna to double down on these issues because you, you can't do everything everywhere. But then reality bites. You know, reality comes in and suddenly Russia invades Ukraine or, uh, uh, you know, all, all kinds of issues. The universe hands you issues uh, and sort of uh, undercuts and defies and challenges your preset ideas. So so it's both. You're, you're always toggling between what you have to do not and also what you want to do. And there's always a, a tension there between uh, those dynamics. But at the same time, I was creating an office. I was building something new out of entirely whole cloth. So I did have some agency. I did have some power. I did have the ability, as long as I could persuade the secretary that this is worth doing. And and so I, I was always trying to make sure I was paying the attention to the to the mission of the office, to the design of the office, to the hiring of the office, and making hard choices because we had too many issues. We couldn't do them all. So we had to develop an ability to discern between what's what's more important and what's less important. So I think chase is a verb that it serves a lot of of yeah. of, of purposes there. But ultimately I wanted to make a case to say uh it, it could be done. Religion analysis could be more sophisticated. It could be done in a much, much better way. And in the book, I, I try to make an argument why that's true. But then I, I spend more time talking about how you do that. Yeah. And, I, and I try to make it clear. You know, we picked issues that were central to, to John Kerry's vision on purpose because I reported directly to him. And at the same time, we discovered issues along the yeah, way. I, um, it's not a word that we use a lot when we talk about vocational discernment or calling. But I also right. can right. really appreciate the idea that, as you described with diplomacy, there's surprises and that nothing unfolds sort of according to plan. And that's certainly sort of the same with vocational journeys or trajectories. And so there, there and it captures a particular energy about a vocational call that I, I think is worth emphasizing and sort of new for vocational conversations. Well, one of my favorite people is, is Wendell Berry and, and Berry has a line and I, I, I should get the citation where he said, I'm, he's living the life given, not the life planned. And at 22, I would have argued that's dead wrong. It's like, I got a path. I know where I'm going. Now, at 65, I look at that, back at that and it's like, wow. <laughs> but I think part of it is, you know, from a vocational perspective, you, I, I try to be a faithful disciple. I want to use the gifts and tools and opportunities I've been given. And I never had a sense that, like, there's path A and then there's B, C, D, E, F, G, and only path A is correct. I think for whatever reason, I've had this disposition that I want to be faithful wherever I end up. And when I graduated with my doctorate, I had three schools, one on the West Coast, one in the center of the country, one on the East Coast. And we we spent a lot of time trying to figure out. Um, and there really was no right or wrong answer there. I think we could have lived fruitful, productive lives uh, in any of those three contexts, but we went through a process of discernment and communication, and we decided coming to D.C. was the right right place. Uh, but we could have done well, I think, in the other two contexts, too. So I think part of vocational discernment is being able to be open to opportunity. And if you if you ha I mean, there have been points in my career where I, it, I was lucky if there was one door and there are other times I had three doors. So I, I, I've seen uh, the twists and turns of that. But I, I think the common theme is how can you use the gifts you have in the opportunities you encounter? Uh, so in that sense, 
you know, at least among the undergrads I've taught in recent years, they're not looking for a 40 year watch from IBM. You know, it, it's 65. That, yeah. That's not what they're <laughs> looking for. They, they've got a big adventure out there. And to say, well, I, I, I'm sorry to break your illusion, but yes, indeed, you've got a 45 year plan and you're, you're, choice your task is to pick out and find that one path right. and if you step off at two inches the wrong way you're cooked i i don't think that a it's not true and b i don't think that resonates with today's undergrads yeah and that that's actually a good segue to uh, a question I'd like to ask, and this is kind of backing up a little bit in your story. Um, I mean, you've just shared about how you would like to be faithful wherever you end up and to discern those doors that happen to be in front of you. But some of your story is also talking about where you began and what shaped you from the beginning uh, that actually led to some of those doors or at least prepared you for some of those decisions and some of those doors uh, and, and experiences. So, So let's back up a little bit. In your book, you go into some detail describing your childhood experiences in, in rural America, um, the religious environment of your upbringing, which you've, you've mentioned a little bit already, and how, how those experiences and how your upbringing prepared you for things that you would never have been able to imagine at the time. Um, reflect a little bit with us about that. In, in what ways did your upbringing prepare you for your life's work? Yeah, the, I have a chapter which I've entitled male pale and not quite Yale. Uh, you know, that th there's the old nostrum about the state department that it is pale male and Yale. And it, from a cursory standpoint, it would be easy to say, yeah, this guy, that's, he didn't make it to Yale. He went somewhere else, but he, he, he fits that pattern. And, and to a certain extent, to the extent that's true, except I really, I was born in a very tiny town in the middle of godforsaken nowhere. And, but I think that the key dynamic in that was was the uh, the demand of education. You know, family of seven, two parents, five kids, and all of us have taught in institutions of of education. Uh, and there was just this sense of you know, my parents were the first to go to college, and they're either side of the family that propelled them into uh, a more interesting uh, life. And it was just a, a, a given in my family. I was fourth of five kids. You're going to grow up, you're going to go to college, and you're going to get as much education as you can, even though we, we grew up very, very much on the kind of bottom middle class rung. Uh, and that's that was really what prepared that propelled me, I think, was... Uh, so, you know, I landed in Abilene, Texas in the fall of 1975, which... I mean, forgive me if there are listeners here. That was not the garden spot of Western civilization <laughs> in 1975. Even you know, having grown up in uh, in Paducah, Kentucky, Ab Abilene was a cultural uh, stretch, to say the least. But there I discovered professors who had studied at Harvard Divinity School for, the, for their graduate work. Now, I, I, you know, I, I had classmates in my high school who had gone to Harvard and other Ivy League colleges at undergrads, but I never knew you could, never knew you could study religion there. Uh, and so I really fell under the spell of those professors who really embodied this notion of faith-seeking understanding. Uh, and, and that was really the rocket I got on that propelled me then uh, to Harvard. And I, I just felt like I'd died and gone to heaven. I mean, I was studying with some of the world's best scholars on the very questions I was intrigued about. So, uh, But th this notion in this sm a small town of getting as much education as you could was really in my DNA growing up. And I think that's sort of what uh, opened the doors for me over the long haul. Yeah, you you write really beautifully about the influence of those particular mentors and showing you the possibilities of and the importance of the study of religious thought. I wondered if you could talk a little bit, Shauna, about the relationship between public life and religion. I mean, I think many of us, you know, get the sense that, you know, we're, that, that politics, education and religion, the conversations between those are sometimes avoided or glossed over or oversimplified for sure. But I mean, your, your life and this most recent book certainly show us the importance of the overlap between public life and religious identity. Could you, could you talk about the way that you see those two things? Oh, absolutely. And how many hours do we have here? I mean, that 
set of questions. What is what is the relationship? What should be the proper relationship, say, between religious communities and the civil realm broadly drawn? Uh, certainly in the history of Christian thought, you, you have a million different answers to that. And if anybody comes along and says, I have the single answer for all Christians in history, they're, they're absolutely talking through their hat. They have no idea what they're talking about. So what, what and I think growing up in a conservative sectarian community like I did is I had no feeling that everybody in the world is going to convert to my viewpoint. <laughs> you know, I had the feeling like we're this tiny little speck within wider Christianity. And if we can just be given enough freedom to do what we want, then that, that's okay. That's a good thing. Now, in the wider evangelical world, that's a tough sell today. You know, there are, we, we have this really turn towards uh, white Christian nationalism, even uh, fascist tendencies, even some Nazi tendencies, which is kind of hard to believe, who are selling a very different singular view of what the Christian answer to that is. And, and that's deeply, deeply troubling, I think, it's driving people away from Christianity because the assumption is that, well, that's the norm. All Christians believe that. So to say you're a Christian out loud in public means you, you're an authoritarian. You want to take over democracy. Uh, you have some other kind of, of polity in mind for the rest of the world, which doesn't agree with your views. That's not the majority view within the history of Christian thought. Um, and so I, I've been influenced by a number of theologians like Ronald Thiemann, uh, Brian Hare, uh, Harvey Cox, Francis Fiorenza, who who said, you know, th there is a role for public Christianity and public religion in a liberal democracy that is not hegemonic, that is not authoritarian, but will embrace democracy, not as an ultimate final end, but as a decent policy that allows uh, a human flourishing better than other forms of, of polities. Uh, so I spent a lot of time thinking about uh, how do Christians enter the world, acknowledging the pluralism of faith, the pluralism philosophies, recognizing that not all people have deeply held religious views, and yet we need to find a way to get along that maximizes the freedom of expression, but also provides for human flourishing across the, the diversity and pluralism, not only of our country, but the world. Now, that position's under assault today. Yeah. Uh, it's under assault from within the church. It's uh, under assault from political forces that are that are globalized, uh, speaking particularly about right-wing populism. So I, I think it's a cutting-edge uh, theological and political issue today. And it's sadly, as is often the case, we have a lot of really horrible examples of how not to do that. And the question, I think, uh, in the immediate political future for us is, where, where are Christians going to land on this? Because I think most Christians are somewhere, they're not there in that hard right white Christian nationalist position. But you're on the defensive publicly because that seems to be uh, the ascendant form of Christian thought today in our wider country. So you're, you're fighting a sort of two-edged battle, one within the, the church itself, but then also in the wider policy to say, no, 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 uh, because I'm a Christian doesn't mean I'm allied with, with these, these right-wing uh, white Christian nationalists. Yeah, and you're, you're implying this in, in that answer, um, but... Fill out a few of the details there too. For I mean, you're you're offering a critique of uh, some some, uh, or you're talking about some Christian approaches and how this plays out in Christian thought. How in your work at the State Department did did that expand out into some interfaith or interreligious uh, uh, engagements or interactions or how you how you what you learned or, or how you engaged other religious communities? Well, I, I've always maintained that. For there to be real interreligious action, people have to show up. <laughs> you know, yeah. you can't Step just one. theorize yeah. this. Yeah, and and so the State Department historically had not always shown up. Uh, now there's some people who wouldn't let me in, but but we were radically inclusive. I mean, I met with everybody who would want to sit down and meet with me, with one exception. And I talk about that one exception in the book where somebody wanted me to come and spend the day with them, but they refused to come to the State Department to see me, and uh, I, I refused to to play that game. Uh, and so, first of all, we were radically inclusive. We we practiced. Uh, and, you know, if we published the full list of people I met with, there'd be a lot of angry people because we I, I didn't ask people, who did you vote for? I didn't ask them, what political party are you part of? 
but it was can we find any mutual overlap where we can talk about making progress together yeah. mm-hmm. and they might disagree with 20 positions that the obama administration had but if there was one we could find to work with i was willing to try and see a path forward right. so in that sense i felt like we worked for the american people we didn't work for the democratic party exclusively but the american people paid our salaries and, and we owed them the opportunity to talk um now I surprised a lot of people when I reached out and said, hey, no, I really want to talk to you. And they were like, whoa, what's the hidden agenda here? Uh, And so some people had just wouldn't give me the time of day. And that's fine. I I didn't keep knocking on doors that I knew were were permanently shut. But I think we, we modeled a sort of radical inclusivity. It doesn't hurt to talk to people. And I think that was one of the great positions of both uh, President Obama and Secretary Kerry. It's it's you're not conceding anything to anybody to sit down and talk with them. And uh, if that's your view of diplomacy, then you're defeated uh, from the beginning. But secondly, you have to signal respect. And uh, there were a lot of places around the world where we called it playing the pinata. I would go in, I would, you know, greet the religious leader, and then I would get an earful of America's sins for the last hundred years in foreign policy. And my job was not to go there and defend a hundred years of American diplomatic history. I'd listened, and in particular, uh, in, in some Muslim communities, the first thing I got hit with was, you know, the invasion of Iraq was wrong. And I would say, let me stop you there. Uh, I agree with you. And I began my public career in Washington campaigning against the war before it started. And there would be these pregnant pauses. <laughs> and sometimes my, my, my escort from the embassy, would the pencil lids would crack. <laughs> I said that. Uh, but suddenly then we got through the, the vexed history of America in certain parts of the world. And I didn't get defensive. I said, look, we've made millions of mistakes there and other places. But then we got to the place where I could ask them real questions and I had to come prepared. I had to be I had to acknowledge the value of their communities. I had to acknowledge the the grievances they had and not try to relitigate them. But then I would say, okay, what is the view of your community about what's going on in this neighborhood? What advice do you have to the State Department? And suddenly we just had these amazing conversations where I could then go back to the embassy with real information uh, that would help them be more effective in that particular space. The other thing I would say quickly, domestically, what I saw was with the uh, expansion of refugee resettlement. I saw forms of interreligious work uh, that I had never seen in America. And I I convinced a number of reporters if they got out in the field, they would see that. They would see particularly Jews, Muslims, and Christians collaborating at the local level in a way that was unprecedented in American history. Now, that's that the line on that's very much up and down now. And now we're back in a political environment where I'm hopeful this administration will continue to rebuild and, and expand our refugee resettlement infrastructure, which will mean more of that kind of interreligious dialogue at the grassroots level will be reborn, I think. struck listening to you talk, Sean, about the idea of the way in which our vocations have a communal response, our sort of obligation to our communities and our neighborhoods and um, to, you know, people around us and, you know, strangers and neighbors alike. And that's not just the onus of the State Department, right? It's sort of a piece of everybody's vocational um, purpose is to kind of enter into dialogue and understanding and find these points of connection. Yeah, and what's interesting is the refugee resettlement is the one domestic public public policy issue where the State Department has the lead, uh, and nine of the implementing partners who actually do the work with with federal money, uh, six of the nine are faith based organizations. So that was my entree to travel the country and visit these these places and to see. Yeah, I, I went in. It sounds like a bad joke. I, I went into a, a Church World Service Refugee Resettlement Center in Jersey City, Jersey. Uh, and I met with the director, and he had an imam, a rabbi, and an evangelical pastor there, all from central Jersey, who had met because their congregation saw the need for resettling refugees, and they had come to this agency 
and they had driven by each other's communities having never interacted until they got to the, the refugee resettlement place. And they're like, I know where you work, I, and I know where your, your, your synagogue is. And they then, through, through this refugee resettlement process, began to work together mm-hmm. and collaborate. Yeah. That's so important, increasingly important, I think. One, one of the things that strikes me in this conversation, uh, even in the last, uh, in, in your descriptions here, is we're kind of fluctuating back and forth between these big ideas. You know, how does public life relate to religion and these global issues and these huge uh, issues like immigration? But we're also talking about how things operate down on the ground level. And one of the things in your book that that uh, that made me think about this was how you talked about some of the goals. I don't, I can't remember the language that you used if it was goals or commitments or what it was. But some of the goals that you tried to instill in the office that you were leading and with your staff at state, and you list some things like finding joy in your work, treating others with dignity, driving out fear, several others. Can you explain some of your thoughts behind those goals and how you developed and promoted them among your staff as kind of a framework for all of this work and all the stuff that you're talking about? I, I say I jokingly say this. Actually, it's it's painfully true. As a professor, I had never organized anything larger than like a seminar of 15 people, and that only lasted 14 weeks, and then it disbanded. So, you know, as a professor, you're doing your own thing in your own classroom. For the most part, you might team teach some uh, you might be on a research team, but but by and large, you're evaluated just for your own work. And that, that was true as a student as well. Now, my spouse uh, has led teams. She's she's uh, done manufacturing. She's produced billions of dollars of revenue for Fortune 100 companies, and it was always team-based. And so I, I, I jokingly say I got an MBA from my wife just by living in the same house and talking to her. Uh, but she, she very much was my teacher and I was her pupil that building teams that function are just as important as the actual technical skills of building an electronic device and getting it out the door and shipped to, to the store. Now, I, I also talk about uh, I worked with a, a chief of staff who was remarkable. Uh, she is the daughter of a rabbi. And it's her mom who's the rabbi. And uh, so we decided when literally it was just three or four of us that we wanted to drop these office values because we had all worked in great workplaces. We'd all worked in horrible workplaces. And the great workplaces tended to be very self-aware of their values and how to how to codify them, how to nurture them, how to grow them. So we came up with this. We we sort of uh, war war game. That's a terrible verb. Uh, we we thought and mulled over a series of values and came up with this list of five or six. And you know, it, she was Jewish. This was not Maimonides. Uh, I I was not claiming to be Saint Thomas. You know, it, we this is sort of the back yeah. of the envelope stuff. But what that did is we we sent a signal as we're, we're building a staff of up to thirty thirty five people. It built, us, it built a bridge where I could slide that list across the table. I'd say, Aaron, just take a minute and read this list and just give me your, your reactions. And I had, I had foreign service officers break down in tears. Hmm. There had never been any discussion of these kinds of things. I had other people look at it and then slide the paper back over like, I got nothing. Why, why are we doing this? It has nothing to do with foreign policy. Yeah. And I was like, thank you so much for coming, John. This has been a great conversation. I've learned so much about you. you know, don't call <laughs> us. We'll call you. Yeah. Uh, but what, it also set up accountability where if the intern felt like I had done something that violated those terms, those values, that intern could come to me, could go to the chief of staff and say, why did Sean do that? Help me understand why he, you know, threw that chair across the room that, that violates every one of these. And, and so it, now, again, that doesn't eliminate the power dynamics in an office, but at least in theory, it allows a person to come, if not to me, the chief of staff or their immediate boss to say, why did we do this or why did she do that? And so it creates a, a format for conversation. Right. And there were times, there were times I did dumb things and I had to apologize for them. And, you know, I, don't, I didn't enjoy that, but it, at least uh, it proved, at least at a surface level, I was not a rank hypocrite on these issues. 
and I think on the whole, I mean, nobody bats a thousand when you've got 40 over the course of four years, 40 some odd people with sharp elbows and who, who are, are brilliant people and many of them highly educated. But as I think I say in the book, life happened. We had parents die. We had children born. We had relationships that exploded. And one of these was, uh, cover for your friends, for your, your peers. And people had to get, you know, my, my mom was 92, I think when we started and I knew at any moment I could get the phone call and I would have to bolt. And I wanted people to be able to do that and leave knowing we would cover for you. We would take care of your portfolio. And there was just, I think some relief that came from that. So I'm really proud of that. I think no matter whether people say we failed uh, in, in our policy goals or whether we were, we were magnificent, I think we created an atmosphere where uh, we we deviated from the norm within the State Department in, in this case, where we truly had a sense of we cared for each other. And, and it also sparked a lot of really interesting cross-theological discussions sometimes. Yeah. So uh, and in, in, I just felt like if we didn't say it explicitly, it wouldn't happen. Yeah. And in vocational uh, discussions, we, all, you know, we often talk about how vocation is about flourishing, leaving a flourishing, leading a flourishing life. And you're talking, you're also talking about how can a community of people, an office of people, flourish together and setting up some of the, as a leader, setting up some of the uh, the framework um, to allow flourishing to happen, both on an individual level uh, and for the integrity of your communal work, uh, is how I hear you describing some of that. Yeah. Um, and I'll say, too, briefly, it's much easier to do when you're building a new organization than when you've landed in an organization that's been there for decades. I I, I I, I struggle with that last one. How do you try to introduce a new culture right. in an old organization? And and I, yeah. I haven't had to try. I haven't done that. Yeah. Um, well, let me let me turn the question even to something maybe a little more difficult, and uh, those. Those goals that you're that you're talking about and the values of that office uh, proved maybe, and you can tell me if this is correct, maybe proved to be even more important um, once your work at the State Department ended, uh, uh, because the story of your work at the State Department also includes what what we might call professional loss and the need to kind of process that loss. And I'm thinking of the fact that you spent. Years launching and developing the Office of Religion and Global Affairs, building a foundation uh, of an office, really, for others to build on, your hopes that others would build on for years to come. And yet you did all of that only to see it quickly dismantled in 2017 when a new president and administration came into office. And um, I know there are, are many layers to that story, political and otherwise, but I'm wondering uh, if you would mind describing that scenario a little bit and and especially sharing how you process that loss that dismantling of your work if that's a fair way to say it how you process process that personally and professionally and how that fits into your understanding of a purposeful life and vocational uh vocational life no that that, that is a great question uh i think the first thing to say is that it was a huge part of my motivation for writing the book um uh, that already there, there are a number of scholars who, who are already assessing what we did, uh, none of whom have actually talked to me or talked to, to many people on my staff. <laughs> but, and, and there was a counter-narrative, uh, and I, I talk about this in the book. There, there were people sort of in the wider uh, international religious freedom community, particularly here in D.C., who had a very negative view of what we did because they saw our mission as a threat to their mission, and these were mainly conservative Christians, uh, and, and very quickly, some some very nasty rumors about you know we were allegedly the the global tip of the spear on the Obama global gay marriage campaign, and I I spent some time saying that that's actually not true. Um, so I, I think part of the, the reason for the book is to tell the truth, and I'm really the only guy who can tell this story because it, it in many ways is my story, uh, and so I want to set the record straight. So I wanted to say something truthful that helped me process my own personal feelings of, of what took place. Uh, secondly, I, 
I'm a hopeful guy at the end of the day. Now, that doesn't mean I'm, I'm an optimist. I think there's a difference theologically between saying you, you have a, you're animated by a theology of hope versus a theology of optimism. I did the best I could. I tried to be the most faithful person I could with the resources I was given, and it was a remarkable opportunity. So I think I show in the book how the kind of work we did is very helpful to American diplomacy, how it can make diplomacy more effective, can make the world less dangerous, and can make the world more peaceful uh, on a number of issues. And I, I spend a lot of time talking about different public policy issues where I think we made a, a contribution. So it, the shutting down of the office is, is less a personal failure for me than it is a lamentation that uh, America is not as capable as it was a few, uh, almost a decade ago when it started this enterprise. Um, and finally, I wanted to say something that was useful in the sense that I, I believe you know, as a friend of mine says, you can ignore religion in diplomacy, but eventually religion finds you. Uh, and we're looking now at Russia invading Ukraine. And a huge part of Putin's set of arguments for invading have to do with religious interpretation. By the same time, we have a civil war going on in Ethiopia, where we have a president who's animated by a uh, prosperity Christian gospel, which is very poorly understood anywhere, but particularly in Africa itself. I don't think the diplomatic apparatus, either globally or from the United States, has a grasp on the theological mind of the leader in Ethiopia, who's currently uh, perhaps having committed a, a genocide there or other human atrocities. So religion is not going to go away in, in global diplomacy. It's going to remain there. Yeah. So what I hope to do is leave behind something that's useful. Uh, in the end, I, 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 I'm hopeful that some form of what we did will be reintroduced into the State Department. I don't think it's going to happen overnight. I think the, the Biden administration at this point seems very ambivalent, uh, and I, I hope at, at some point that begins to change. Well, I think it's important to hear those stories of, don't want to say rise and fall, but maybe ebb and flow <laughs> uh, of of our you know professional work, and um, you know we don't know the sort of larger effects or ramifications of it really down the road, and right. um, it's important for all of us to hear that. As we like to ask all of our guests, Sean, I'd like to invite you to consider some advice you'd give to today's. Uh, undergraduates or young people who are pursuing many, you know, different forms of vo vocational roles and different ideas that they're considering for their lives and looking at the world that they're in and that we're, you know, sort of giving, you know, handing to them in some ways. What advice would you offer to undergraduates? Well, I, I think that we are living in an age of heightened anxiety, particularly in today's college generation. And I, I see that see that in my own classrooms where people were able to make assumptions about the American government, America's interest in diplomacy that are no longer uh, solid. So if you want to be a diplomat, you really have to ask yourself the question, wow, in two years, we may have a completely different administration that will, like the, the Trump administration, essentially destroy our diplomatic capacity. Uh, and that's a real shock, and the anxiety from that is very real. I would still say the counter-argument to that is that the State Department was stripped of so many personnel, so many fundamental assets. The Biden administration is having to rebuild that airplane while they're flying it, and, and it's very difficult to do. But a person who becomes a diplomat today, and if they spend 30, 40 years, in the next 30 or 40 years working in restoring American diplomacy, you may be known as the greatest generation. In a sense, you're going to try to recalibrate, in a sense, uh, discover the ethics that were once part of the State Department ethos that were, were gone for four years. It's an opportunity to have outsized influence in the future of that institution. Uh, and, I, you know, the reality is that there are no guarantees. I don't think the current generation wants that 40 years and then the gold watch at the end. They, they want to be able to move around and, and try different things on. The U.S. State Department has just announced the massive innovation of paid internships. So now any student who thinks they might want to be a diplomat can do, assuming that they've got the academic qualifications, can do a summer internship in an American diploma, uh, embassy abroad. And you can rent 
the foreign service office foreign service officer gig and see how it's done and get paid to do that so what that does it's going to open up the opportunity for the, the state department to recruit a much more diverse incoming set of diplomats who i think will have potentially the opportunity of of a generation to actually change the trajectory not only of who makes U.S. foreign policy, but how that foreign policy is made and what the content of that foreign policy looks like. So try it out. You You don't have to become a foreign service officer, but you can do an internship abroad and really see what it's like. What what is American diplomacy like on, on, on the front rows? But I guess the last thing I would say is, particularly if you're coming from a Christian theological perspective, is you have to have trust and you have to have faith that you are going to acquire skills. Now, there are no guarantees that because you have that skill set, you're going to be able to deploy them. Uh, But you need to have some level of confidence that if you acquire these gifts and talents, uh, that there will be opportunities to, to match what you've been given in places where you can faithfully deploy those in the service of humankind. Um, mine was a long, very, very sketchy, zigzaggy career. And I, you know, I I have no grounds for complaint. I'm incredibly grateful for the opportunities I've had. Uh, I think there's similar paths awaiting people, but you're going to have to get the skill set, and you're also going to have to take some risks. And I think it's well worth it. Thank you for that. And thank you, Sean, for your time today and sharing your insights and wisdom about all of the many aspects of your work, both um, in Washington, but really the impacts near and far. We really enjoyed talking with you today. Well, thank you. It's been my pleasure. And uh, I hope people find the the book to be interesting and, and encouraging and helpful. But again, thank you so much. I've enjoyed this thoroughly. And to our listeners, as always, we wish you the best on your journey in pursuing the life well-lived. Until next time. That was a compelling and fascinating conversation with Sean Casey. It was, yeah. I I was uh, really drawn in to the wider descriptions of you know, work um, with diplomacy, but was also captured with the idea that he presented towards the front of the conversation about our common responsibilities to the political questions of the age. This idea that we all have a responsibility to respond to and engage with political questions and contemporary issues. And to me, that's a very pointed and important call to everyone to think about being responsible to those right. questions. Yeah. And it, and because it's about our shared public life, you know, it's right. about the life, the life that we all live together and share together and are responsible to one another uh, with regard to that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that that was compelling to me too, and that stood out to me. And it, it also stood out to me, you know, when we think about, well, what forms does that take? Uh, what, How am mm-hmm. I supposed to be responsible? Uh, in what ways can I be responsible or can I contribute to these to these big questions and these big issues of our age? And, you know, when we think about that in terms of vocational discernment, it it i it struck me the way that he described himself as someone that just tries his hardest to be faithful wherever he ends up and yeah. you know he 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 talked some about how vocation is both something that that you kind of pursue but it's also something that just kind of appears or lands on you or however you want to say that um mm-hmm. but whatever happens Wherever you end up and the choices that you find in front of you, the doors that you find in front of you and and the discernment process for that, just trying to be faithful and thoughtful and discerning mm-hmm. um, in the in the face of those choices and those situations, yeah, and he's had so many interesting kinds of, you know, roles and I guess chances to explore what it means to live into your vocation in that particular time and place. And I mean, you know, leading up to then the loss of that office 
that he was running at the State Department. And, you know, I I was struck by his language of lamentation and what it means to lament a professional and personal loss. You know, he said that he had sort of done, you know, what he could do together with his team, you know, was sort of amazed at the sort of impacts of that work and then also what it means to to lament it, lament the loss of it. Right. And and I think added to that, something that was so meaningful that he said, and I think very important, is uh, is the distinction that he made between hope and optimism. Yeah. And he said he said that he's not particularly or that he's he, he can't always be described as being optimistic, but he, that he's hopeful. And that that's a powerful distinction. You know, optimism kind of this this way that we think about uh, can we calculate uh, things based on what we know and feel good about the, where the world is going, not always, but can we find, can we tap into this deeper kind of human sense of trust and hope and optimism mm-hmm. in humanity and in other, uh, um, you know, forces in, uh, in nature and different things in, in our faith and different faith traditions. And so that distinction I found to be uh, very, very important. Yes. It was important to hear um, that idea of power of hope. Callings is hosted by NetView, the network for vocation and undergraduate education, an association of nearly 300 colleges and universities in the U.S. and Canada. NetView is administered by the Council of Independent Colleges and is funded through member dues and generous support from Lilly Endowment Incorporated. Your hosts were John Barton and Aaron Van Laningham. The editor and assistant producer for the episode was Marion Edwards, and our music was composed by Dan Kennedy. You can find our library of podcasts at netview.buzzsprout.com. Additional resources can be found at NetView's blog, vocationmatters.org, and at the NetView program page at the Council of Independent Colleges website, www.cic.edu. Thank you for listening. Listeners to this episode may also be interested in our conversation with Amanda Tyler, Executive Director of the Baptist Joint Committee in Washington, D.C., found in Season 1, Episode 9, entitled The Next Move. You may also enjoy our conversation with Rabbi Rachel Mikvah entitled Dangerous Ideas, Episode 6 of Season 1.